chapter 18. Um, That is where we'll spend our time this morning, um, verses 1 to 15 there. Um, If you don't have a Bible, or maybe you just forgot it, you don't have a Bible on you, um, go ahead and put up your hand, and one of our ushers will get you uh, a Bible. We want you to have God's Word open on your lap. Um, I have nothing for you. I do not come with uh, great wisdom. Um, I come with God's Word, and we sit together under it um, to learn from the Lord. And uh, um, yeah, we want to see together what God has. It's interesting looking at this passage, um, reminded there's just something special about having dinner together, isn't there? A young man wants to pursue a lady. What does he do? Takes out for dinner. You meet another family at church and you get to chat a little bit back and forth um, after the service and whatnot, but you don't really get to know each other until what? Until until one of you asks the other over for for dinner. You share food together. You swap stories. You you end up in somebody's home. You you share life together. Uh, I love having people over for dinner. I love being had over for dinner. Um, But just imagine yourself in this position that Abraham finds himself in. Genesis 18, out of the blue, without warning, he has God himself uh, as his unexpected dinner guest. Like, just process that for a second. It's awkward enough when someone shows up unexpectedly. Um, I don't know if, if this happens in your house. I know we've done it a few times. You're talking to someone after church. You don't want to end the conversation. There's nothing really planned for the afternoon. And I pull my wife aside and I say, hey, I I know the house is a disaster and we have no plans for what to eat, but can we have someone over for dinner? Um, And sometimes the the look of exhaustion and fear, um, and and I get it, I'm I'm not that dense, I pick up on that. Uh, And and sometimes um, she says, sure, let's go for it. Um, And so I've made that very invitation. Hey, the house is a disaster, we have nothing to eat, do you want to come over and join us? Uh, It's great. Um, But what do you do? You, You burn home quick, you're pulling the laundry off the drying rack, you're clearing the dirty dishes off the table and, uh, and, and trying to get, get ready. But for Abraham, this is not just any visitor coming over. Um, this is the Lord himself. Talk about pressure. And yet beneath the surface of this little surprise dinner party is, is grace and kindness of the Lord in, in just an amazing way. Uh, And so let's look together, Genesis chapter 18, um, verses 1 to 15, when the Lord comes to dinner. So let's uh, follow along as I read this passage. Genesis 18, starting in verse 1. The Lord appeared to him, that's to Abraham, by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran out from the tent to the door, uh, from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth. And he said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought to wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves, and after that you may pass on, since you have come to your servant. And so they said, Do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, three seahs of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, tender and good, gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. And then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. 
And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, Where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, She is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, Am I, uh, after I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? In the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, No, but you did laugh. Would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you that in a world of shifting truth, of changing morals, of, of, of constant um, change and your firm. Your word is unchanging. Your word is faithful and true. God, help us as we come to your word. Lord, you know we are so often distracted, or worse, hard of heart, slow to hear. God, would you be shaping us to the image of Christ this morning? Would you open our eyes? Would you soften our hearts that we might be confronted where we need to be confronted? that we might be strengthened and encouraged where we need to be strengthened and encouraged. God, I pray that you would be with um, my mouth as I speak, Lord, that, um, that my words would be true to your word, that if there's anything I have prepared that, that is not of you, that those words would be forgotten. Lord God, that your word would go forth, that your truth would be at work in the hearts of your people today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but I feel like I should be sitting in the door of my tent in the heat of the day. Um, Corey, I wonder if we open this door, can we get a cross breeze going? I, I don't think I'm the only one that's getting warm. Um, praise the Lord. You can't complain about heat when you live in Canada. We need more of these days, not less, so don't get me wrong. Um, looking at this passage, I think it, I think it breaks into two pieces, um, and, and each piece has two elements. And so in each part, there's a human element, element and a divine element. Um, verses 1 to 8, we see the devoted host, and we see the divine visitor. And then verses 9 to 15, um, we see the doubting wife and the divine promise. So that's where we're going as we kind of break this down. Um, look first with me, verses 1 to 8, and we see this devoted host and the divine visitor. Verse 1 opens, telling us as the readers what's going on. We know that it's the Lord appearing to Abraham. And at this point, though, it's not clear if Abraham's aware of that. Um, he's still living by the oaks of Mamre where we had left him last. And um, likely this is just his custom. In the heat of the day, he's taking a break. Um, he's taking a siesta. Uh, he's resting in the shade um, as the sun is at its highest. And as he rests there, maybe he's dozing off a little bit now and again. He happens to look, and, and, and standing in front of him are three men. Now, this is easy for us, right? Verse 1, the Lord appeared to Abraham. Verse 2, three men stood before him. It's the Trinity. 
Probably not. Um, probably not. Um, that certainly is not what Abraham would have thought. He, he didn't have a concept of the Trinity. There, there are glimpses of it in the Old Testament. The Old Testament certainly doesn't contradict the idea of the Trinity, um, but it's definitely not clearly revealed. And, and so, um, specifically here, there are a few things that I think suggest that that's not the case. Uh, verse 3, Abraham speaks to one person. O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, and, and Hebrew has a little more specificity there than English, that your is singular, um, do not pass by your servant. Um, it seems that maybe one of these people stood out a little more than the other as the, as the leader. Uh, and then verse 4, he invites all of them, come stay, be refreshed. Um, verse 22, we'll jump ahead, we're going to get to this next week, um, but, it, but it says, so the men turned from there and went to Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. So there's three men that come, Abraham speaks to one of them in particular, then, then we're told that the men leave and the Lord stays. A uh, little more clarity, I think chapter 19 verse 1, two angels, sorry, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. So three people seems to be that one is the Lord and two are angels. They all appear as men, um, but as they divide up, we get a little more clarity. So the Lord stays with Abraham and has this, this conversation that we'll get to next week about Sodom and Gomorrah. Um, so tempting as it is, I, I don't think this is the Trinity here, but it certainly is um, a theophany. This is God appearing again to Abraham. Um, and what we definitely see in Abraham is this amazing example of hospitality. There, there are a few things that, that stand out as you're reading through this. First, when, when Adam sees these men, um, apparently at a little bit of a distance, it says that he ran out to meet them. Keep reading, and, 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 and you see Abraham has bowed himself down to the earth before them. Um, remember, Abraham's 99 years old. He is not a spring chicken, and he is this king-like figure. This is a big deal that he would run out, that he would bow himself before them. Verse 3, he addresses one of them as Lord. Now, this is not all caps. It's not Yahweh, the name of God, um, but it's a title of honor, of, of respect, Lord or Master. And he draws them in. Please come, rest, be refreshed. Let me wash your feet, take a break. He offers them a little water and a morsel of bread. Um, that's kind of ironic, because as the story goes on, um, we see what's going on behind the scenes. Sarah uh, prepares three sias of flour. Now, that means nothing to us, um, but if you had a, a good sia measuring cup, um, you'd know that's almost five gallons of flour. That's a lot of bread. They kill the tender calf, the fattened calf. They prepare that. Uh, and then he brings out curds and milk. This is not a morsel of bread. Like, this is not the leftover crumbs and a glass of water. He is putting on a feast. And notice the urgency here. Notice Abraham ran out to meet them. And then he tells Sarah, quick, mix some flour. And then he ran to the herd to get a calf. And he tells the young man, uh, prepare it quickly. And there's this eager urgency about the whole scene. This is Abraham's desire to, to serve, to be hospitable, to give of himself uh, for these guests. Verse 8, he stood by them under the tree 
while they ate. Now, at first I was like, that's kind of awkward. Um, and then I remembered my brother took us to this fancy restaurant in Boston where we had no business being. And, uh, and one of those, I think there was a group of six of us, and there were at least three um, wait staff. And, and every time you took a sip of water, they would come and top it up again. Like it was like a challenge to get your water below half. Uh, you finish one course of the meal, and I like this because you know, it helped me out a little bit. He takes this little scraper and he cleans up all the crumbs that you left behind on the, on the table. Um, I think that's kind of the idea here. Like Abraham is like ready and waiting. What can I get you? How can I serve you? Um, he, he's incredibly hospitable here, serving them. And, and just get the context. Like this is, this is inconvenient. It's bad timing. He's in the middle of his afternoon nap. He's tired from a morning of work. He's trying to rest. He wasn't prepared for this. He's not planning on it. This was costly. It was a lot of flour that they had plowed the ground and sold and, 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 and uh, seeded that and, and, and ground the flour. This is hard work. And, and, and I don't think Abraham at this point knows that this is the Lord. So far, I think he doesn't have any idea who these men are. Um, but he's not moping around. He's not doing this begrudgingly. Um, he, he is eager to pour out hospitality extravagantly, lavishly. Abraham was incredibly hospitable, quick, eager to welcome these strangers, to, to bring them into his home, uh, to serve them, to honor them. Uh, this is not by any means the point of this passage, um, but, but it's worth pausing to look at. Why is Abraham so hospitable? What's the root here of this characteristic in him? Well, could it be that perhaps the hospitality that he had been shown from the Lord is what spurs him on? After all, Abraham was once a foreigner in a strange country, an outsider. The Lord, in a sense, ran to him, called him, brought him in, cared for him, and blessed him extravagantly. And having been so treated by the Lord with such audacious hospitality, Abraham now overflows with hospitality to others. Moving into the New Testament, 1 Peter 4, 8, and 9. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. And I think there's a connection between this and the next verse. How do we, how do we love each other well? Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Titus 1, 1 Timothy 3, the, those lists of the qualifications of elders, hospitality is on that list. Romans 15, 7 ties this back to the gospel. He says, therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Just like Abraham had been welcomed by the Lord and then was welcomed to others, we have been welcomed by Christ, and, and so we are to be a welcoming people. That should be the natural outflow of our salvation. It's Genesis 18 that I, that I think Hebrews is pointing back to. You're probably familiar with this passage, Hebrews 13.2. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Now, um, I don't know if this was more of a 90s thing, but I grew up in a world where, you know, maybe... Maybe that lady that I returned the cart for was an angel. And maybe, that was, you know, maybe this was an angel, and we're kind of looking for that. I, I, I don't think that's what Hebrews is talking about. Um, I think the author of Hebrews here is pointing back to Genesis 18. He's saying, 
Remember Abraham? Remember his extravagant hospitality toward those strangers who just so happened to turn out to be two angels and the Lord himself? And of course, Jesus would go on to say, Matthew 25, 40, as you did to one of the least of these, so you did to me. So this question of angels actually becomes irrelevant because to serve others is always to serve Christ. And those who have been welcomed by the Lord in salvation ought to be the most welcoming people on the planet. Um, Do our lives reflect that? Are we so moved and saturated by the goodness of God toward us in the gospel that, that we pour that out? Do you have people over? Do you roll out the red carpet? Are, are you willing to be inconvenienced, to give of your time, your money, to put on a meal? Are you introverts to, to sacrifice your safe space and allow some intruder to be in your home? And not just for people that are like you, that you have a natural affinity with, but for for others, inside the church and outside the church. Now, by and large, church, um, you excel at this. I love seeing this in our church. I see it often. I love it. The Lord loves it. But let's keep going. Let's press into that. Let's strive to be the most welcoming, hospitable church. You can't walk in this front door without someone getting to know your name, someone getting to know you, someone asking you over for dinner, that people are getting to know each other. Um, the gospel ought to produce that in us. And so that's what we, we see in Abraham, this, this kind of spur on like that. We ought, to, we ought to live that way. But we also see in these verses this divine visitor. Abraham may not know exactly who this visitor is, not entirely sure, but, but we know. Um, Moses, the author, tells us it's the Lord. It's the Lord. Verse 1, and the Lord, and that is all caps, that is Yahweh, the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre. And it's the Lord who sits down and eats with Abraham. Um, as far as I can find and remember, this is the only time that the angel of the Lord Uh, actually eats. The elders of Israel at Sinai are called up the mountain after the um, the covenant Sinai is given, and they they eat in the presence of the Lord, but the Lord doesn't eat. Gideon prepares a meal for the Lord, and, and he lays it out, and the Lord reaches out his staff, and the fire consumes it, but he doesn't eat. Here the Lord himself sits down and eats a meal prepared by Abraham. This, this might be one of the reasons that Abraham is the only one who's called a friend of God. This is amazing. This is, this is condescension on God's part. And, and I realize we usually use that word with negative connotations um, because it means that someone is above us and treating us like they're stooping down to us and we don't like that. Um, but if someone actually is above us, if it's God who is actually stooping down to our level, condescending to us, that's amazing. The picture uh, at this point, oh, thank you. Um, the picture that's painted at this point uh, is, is astounding. If you remember the heart of God and, and his promise to his people right from the garden, from the first sin, that he would send this rescuer, that he would, he would crush the serpent, that the curse of sin would be broken, as we've sung about already this morning, that he would undo the, the effects of sin. 
Now the Lord told Abraham that promise was going to come through you, Abraham. And here's this interesting picture, because it all went wrong in the Garden of Eden, right? When Adam and Eve were cast out of the presence of God after they sat under a tree and ate with the serpent. Now, as the Lord is unfolding this rescue plan, here's Abraham, the recipient of this promise, back into the presence of God, sitting under a tree and eating with God. I think there's something to that. I think that's intentional. I think that's kind of the Hebrew mindset that they're picking up on these things a lot quicker than we are. God is not so subtly communicating. There's going to be a reversal. I'm undoing what was done by sin. This is the promise. The divine visit is, is loaded with, with meaning and purpose. Um, and that, that moves us uh, into verses 9 to 15. And, and we'll see more of this promise played out. Um, and we see this, this doubting wife and the divine promise. Um, let's, let's read 9 to 15 again. This is, um, just get this fresh before us. They said to him, the angels, messengers said to Abraham, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she is in the tent. And the Lord said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of the woman had ceased to be with Sarah. And so Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the point... Um, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did. If there's any doubt remaining, um, here it becomes clear. Um, the Lord says to Abraham, where is your wife, Sarah? Now, Culturally, this is just way out of bounds. It would have been totally inappropriate to ask a man about his wife. They were eating separately, as was the custom. This was, this was crossing some lines. But he doesn't just ask about Abraham's wife. Um, he calls her by name. He calls her by her brand new covenant name. This visitor knows more than he should, right? Abraham, at this point, should be figuring this out. I, I've heard talk like this before. I know where this is coming from. The visitor tips his hand in this way. Um, and he also shows the, the purpose of his visit. He, he didn't come just to eat with Abraham. He came to deliver a message to Sarah. So significant that, that the Lord cares about her too. He's made these grand promises with Abraham. And now he, he cares as well about Sarah as she is wrestling and doubting. They're only divided by the tent wall. There's not much privacy here. And so it seems that verse 10 was kind of meant to be overheard. He's, he's talking to Abraham, but for Sarah's benefit. And he says, in one year's time, Sarah, your wife, will have a child. And, and again, immediately we see um, why this was said for Sarah's benefit. She, she needed to hear it. Verse 11 reminds us, Abraham and Sarah were old. 
Not only that, but, but Sarah has been barren her whole life, and now the, the way of the woman uh, has ceased to be with her is a, a delicate way of saying she is postmenopausal. And so as, as far as producing children, her body is, is doubly dead. It's over. There's not a chance here. And she is very aware of that fact. She's been looking at this promise of God, and it's always been impossible, and now it's out of the question. Verse 12, because of her age and her barrenness, she heard the promise from the Lord, and she laughs. And she doesn't laugh out loud. This is inaudible. This is internal. But in her heart, she's saying, yeah, right. I've heard this before. It's not happening. We've been waiting We're not getting closer, we're getting further. Not a chance. Once again, the visitor shows he knows a little bit more than the average dinner guest. And and he speaks to Abraham, knowing that Sarah is listening. And he says, why did Sarah laugh and say, "Uh, shall I bear a child now that I'm old? Imagine Sarah in that moment. Oops, (laughs) he's listening. He hears my thoughts. Um, Sarah was doubting. Abraham was the one who saw the, the, the torch and the fire pot walk between the, the animals torn in two. Abraham had received the, the sign of circumcision directly from the Lord. Abraham had heard this promise again, not by Ishmael, but by Sarah. Your son Isaac will be born to her, and that's who my promise will come through. Uh, and, and I have a hard time imagining that, that Abraham wasn't bringing that to his, to his wife and telling her in great detail what the Lord had said, but it's not the same as being there. And Sarah's still struggling. She's having a hard time believing it. You sure, Abraham? Like, maybe you got it. Maybe you missed the, something's not adding up here. It's shocking if you stop and think about it. Man, the Lord spoke his promise again to Sarah and she laughed. Man, as a father, and I speak to my kids, no, I promise I'm gonna, we're going to do this and they'd laugh at me. Oh, that would, I would get angry in my sinful flesh. Why wouldn't you believe me? You don't trust me? The Lord's so patient. He's so gentle. She scoffs at the idea of this promise coming true. But that wasn't a surprise to the Lord. That's why he came. He knew that was in her heart, and he came to encourage her and to to strengthen her faith. And so he doesn't deal harshly with her. He he doesn't curse her for her unbelief. Um, Out of fear, she she tries to deny it. Um, You can imagine this this shock of saying something in your head and having someone repeat it back to you. And and she's thinking, no, I didn't. Like, nobody heard that. The Lord responds, this kind of gentle rebuke. Um, No, you did. You laughed. But he doesn't scold her. Instead, he, he simply restates, re-emphasizes this promise that he has made. Reminds me of John the Baptist sitting in prison, wondering, really? Is Jesus the Messiah? I mean, he was supposed to be the, the forerunner to the Messiah. He's the one paving the way, and now he's sitting in jail. He doesn't know his head's about to get chopped off. It's not going better for him from there. And he's doubting, he's wondering. He's looking at his chains and saying, I didn't think it would go down this way. And so he sends some of his disciples to go and talk to Jesus and ask him a pretty pointed question. Are you the one or should we wait for another? Like, are you going to do something here or is it somebody else? Jesus doesn't get angry. He doesn't rebuke. But he tells John's disciples, 
just go tell John what you've seen. Right? The blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear. He quotes from Isaiah. Interestingly, he doesn't quote the part about the captives being set free. But it's, it's him. It's undeniable. All of those, as you read through the Gospels and you see Jesus doing these different miracles, he's not just showing off. They are specific evidence that he has come to undo the curse of sin. This is it. He really is the one who has come. Um, doubt is not a good thing. Our culture at times has kind of turned doubt into this, into this virtue. It's not a virtue to believe, to be confident, to have unwavering, solid faith. That's a virtue. And yet we often struggle. We struggle for faith. And to those who do, to those who are, who are his children, but who, who struggle with assurance, who have a hard time believing that, that God's promises could actually come true in their lives, he's patient. He's gentle. He came down and visited Abraham and Sarah for that very reason. Do you struggle with doubt? You have a hard time keeping that in front of you, keeping faith in the Lord. Sometimes look at this broken world and think, really, God? All things for the good of those who love you? I, I didn't think it would go down this way. It's not what I expected. I'm not seeing it. I tell you, I've been there. I was recently, um, just this last week, sitting down and, and getting counsel from uh, a godly older brother. And, and in my attempt to express faith, um, I'm, I made this statement that, that I, I, I always just have this kind of in my mind straight line from, from A to B, and the Lord just, he just always seems to want to go the long way around. <laughs> and God bless this brother. He looked at me and, and he said, John, why do you still think yours is the straight path? <laughs> like, God's way. The way that he had ordained since before the beginning of time, his plan that was always the most direct way for him to fulfill his purpose in your life. Checkmate. Conviction landed. Okay. But we do. We, we assume that the, the plans in our minds are the most logical, obvious, best plan. God, where are you going? What are you doing? It's hard to see it sometimes. So often we are weak and doubting. The Lord meets with doubting Sarah with this, this divine promise. And in one sense, there's nothing new here. He doesn't add anything other than a little bit of timing. But he just restates the same promise. This time next year, Sarah will have a son. He follows that with verse 14. Is there anything too hard for the Lord? If you're wondering, that's a rhetorical question. No. No, absolutely nothing. Nothing is too difficult for him. He's promised. Is there anything that would keep him from carrying that out? Is there anything that would block the Lord God Almighty from, from accomplishing his plans? No. And to affirm that to Sarah, he's come down and he shared a meal with them. Not only is this uh, an Im image of the, the reversal of the effects of the garden, but a meal together was significant in that culture. It was a big deal. It was a declaration, a symbol of peace. 
It was a, a declaration of, of unity and goodwill between two parties. As we mentioned already, the Lord came down to Sinai, gave the covenant there. He brought up the elders of the people up onto the mountain and he, and he put a feast before them. They ate in the presence of the Lord. The sacrifices of the, the temple, the, the tabernacle, they're, they're integrally bound up with this idea of a meal. The, the, the lamb or the, the bull, the goat, is slain and cooked. There's grain offerings. There's drink offerings. There's bread of the presence, one of the permanent structures in the tabernacle and later the temple. It's a table set with bread and wine. It's a symbol of God saying, I will again eat with you will be restored to fellowship. The peace offering in particular was a meal that you would bring in, you and your family, and you would eat before the Lord. Through all of these, the Lord is saying, I will have peace with my people again. There will be reconciliation of our relationship. I will dwell with you. And to Sarah in particular, the Lord is saying, it's going to happen through your descendants. You will have a son. And through your son, humanity again will have peace with God. The word of the Lord, uh, the the word that the Lord uses there is is very intentional. Nothing is too hard for God. That word hard, um, it's tough to translate um, because it's a broader meaning than that. Hard is accurate. It just doesn't say enough. Um, The idea is that it's hard because it's wonderful. There's, there's nothing too wonderfully difficult for God. There, there's nothing too amazing for him to do. So he encourages Sarah with these words. You will have the pleasure of, of bearing a child, even in your old age, because nothing is too wonderful for God. But of course... That promise, the birth of Isaac, that wasn't the end of God's plan. This is the beginning of God's plan. It's pointing forward to God's plan of salvation. Isaiah 9.6. I don't know if Isaiah was thinking this specifically. It says, For us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. First of all, I wonder if there shouldn't be another comma there. Um, Hebrew's not great with punctuation. We're left to kind of figure it out. Um, we always just, at least I've always read wonderful as, as just a, an adjective describing the kind of counselor he would be. Uh, I think maybe it would be, should be wonderful. His name will be called Wonderful and Counselor and Prince of Peace. But either way, um, that word wonderful there is the same word from Genesis 18. Nothing will be too wonderful for the Lord to do. Jesus, the promised Messiah, he will be the wonderful one. He's coming. And then, of course, we fast forward a couple of years, a couple of thousand years, and we run into another lady. And she's told she's going to have a child. And she also questions the Lord, can it be? How is this possible? This time, not because she's old and barren, but because she's young and she's never been with a man. What does God say to Mary? Luke 1.37, nothing will be impossible for God. You think there's an intentional connection there? Think the Lord is referencing back, I, I did it to Sarah. I've been working my plan out the whole time. 
It's still not impossible. It's still not too hard. It's still not too glorious. The Lord is saying, this is the one. This is the promise that I had promised so long ago. This is the wonderful one. The rescuer who's come to undo the curse of sin, who would bring forgiveness and restore humanity to peace with God. This is him. And as Jesus would go to the cross to die, to pay the penalty for our sin, where he would break the curse of sin and death, and he would rise again as this promise and, and guarantee of new life for us, and that he would bring a new creation, the Lord would still be concerned for the weak and the doubting. Those like Sarah, those like Mary, who are prone to ask, Lord, can it really be? Are you really going to do it? Like Sarah looked at her barren old body and asked, God, can you really bring life out of this? Do you ever just look at your own life, broken and sinful? Ask, really, Lord, can you make something out of this? Realize I've sinned again, right? Like you're watching this mess, Lord? Can there really be forgiveness can there really be reconciliation for a sinner like me? You ever look at this dead and broken world, this absolute hopeless society spiraling into decay? Or just as bad, those who would hold to their old-fashioned moral values and upright living and declare, I don't need God. And we ask, really, Lord? Are you really going to make all things new? Because I'm watching what's happening in the news and I'm not seeing it. This isn't the way I thought it would play out, Lord. Is there really hope for a better future? Will these broken relationships and painful wounds ever be healed? And the Lord knows our weakness. He knows we're but dust. And so just as the Lord did with Abraham and Sarah, he did with his disciples, he sat down with a meal. Symbol of peace. And as he handed out the wine and the bread to the disciples on the night before he was betrayed. Yeah, it pointed back to the Passover, but even underneath that, it's pointing back to Abraham and Sarah. And he told his disciples, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Continue this feast, to continue to come into my presence and have a meal together. Every time we participate in communion, we're receiving his gentle, loving, beautifully condescending reassurance. Trust me. Yes, I will fulfill my promise. Yes, I can save your sinful soul. Yes, I can bring life out of death. Yes, one day all things will be made new. Nothing is too wonderfully difficult for me, my precious, doubting little child. That's why we practice communion. This constant reminder, we need it. The Lord knows that we need it. Frequent word from the Lord to our weak and weary, doubting hearts. The Lord is affirming his promise. And it's our declaration that our hope is in him. And we're awaiting his return. What exactly is it that we're 
looking forward to at his return? Revelation 19, 6 and 7. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory for the marriage of the Lamb, the marriage supper of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made himself herself ready. The church is the bride of Christ, and we will sit down with him and feast together. We will sit down in this celebratory feast, literally the feast to end all feasts, because this feast will never end. It's the fulfillment of every feast. The bride of Christ, fully restored, full, most intimate relationship we can think of as a, a bride and groom. We will be united together with the Lord in his presence. We will have peace, we will have fellowship, rejoicing into eternity. Roman, Beth, why don't you come and prepare to lead us in worship again. Um, And as we partake of this little meal, this is God's encouragement to our hearts. God building our faith. This this crumb of bread and this little sip of juice. I know sometimes it's fun to do it as, as potluck and to feast together, but I think there's something significant about this little tiny symbol. We get just a taste of it now. The feast.